who believes in miracles? Wow, that's pretty cool. Who doesn't believe in miracles? It's all right. You're allowed to. Um, it's okay. I just want to get a gauge. Yeah, I, you know, what, what do we do with miracles? I'm not sure what we do with miracles. Um, Matthew 9, there's this, this child that's raised from the dead. It's a, this woman's daughter's raised from the dead. Jesus does it, and I think it's incredible. And every time I read it, I get so excited. I'm like, what a miracle, you know, to do that. And then we see it again with Jesus himself, right? And then I think about for thousands upon thousands of years, the millions and millions of children who parents prayed and prayed and prayed for their child till they come back or come back to, to life or come back to some sort of normalcy and it doesn't happen. And when I think about whether or not I believe in miracles, I think about that. I think about children that, that don't come back. And when I think about miracles, I think about Jesus feeding the 5,000 or the 4,000. It's incredible. And then I think about the people who pray and pray for food and who starve, even in a time like the 21st century, who are starving. And so what I want to do is I, I want to think, you know, why did Jesus have some miracles that took place and then the other miracles aren't happening and I don't know what to do with that. There was a woman that I hung out with last week. I was in Colorado last week at a conference. And it was this conference where we got to talk about what it looks like to start more churches like our church. I'm pretty excited about this. It's a good conference. But this person was talking, and they said uh, they have this pain. And it's this really common pain, a pain that I think all of us would not even bat an eye at. And she's had it her entire life. And, and so we were talking, and she said, you know what? I have so much shame around this pain that I have. And it was like surprising. I was like, why? It's not that big of a deal. And she's like, because for my whole life, people have prayed for it and it hasn't gone away. And people have told me it's because I lack faith. And that's why I'm missing something. And that really hurts. I wonder about miracles when that's the case. And so my default is to go, well, those things are good and they happen, but I don't know if miracles can really happen. When I think about the idea that I don't know if miracles can really happen, what I tend to do is I tend to limit myself. Because raise your hand if you've ever like, witnessed something or dealt with something that feels impossible, but then the possible happens. Has that ever happened to you in some way? Yes, right? And so what do we do with that? Because if we say we don't believe in miracles, we're severely limiting the way we experience life. We're severely limiting what might be going on inside um, the lives of others. We're severely limiting what I really believe to be the Holy Spirit at work in the everyday, and we're not being able to see the, the thumbprints that are God's prints all over uh, humanity, right? We, 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 we say, when we say the impossible is just the impossible, I think we miss out on so much. And so, so I think I want to talk about a third way. And the third way is this. What if we didn't focus just directly on the miracle? What if we didn't focus on that event? What if the miracle was trying to tell us something bigger? What could you imagine if you imagine the miracle happening? Not necessarily the miracle itself, but what happens because you imagine the miracle happening? How does life change because you imagine the miracle happening? How does that look? And that's the way I want to focus today. Not did it happen or didn't it happen, but what can we imagine happens when we imagine the miracle happening? How does life change? How does it look different? And in order to talk today, I'm going to talk a little bit about my favorite miracle. Jesus turns water into wine. Anybody else like that one? Is this a good one? If I, have I married, has that, I think I haven't married anybody in this room. But when I do, I usually talk about turning water into wine because it happens at a wedding. And that's pretty cool as well. Um, but it's my favorite one. Um, and let's, so let's talk a little bit about, what my, about my favorite miracle. And I want to, again, let's, let's not, did this happen? Did it not happen? But like, what can we imagine happening? if we imagine this miracle taking place, all right? 
On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And when the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Um, this story is a funny story. We're just going to start there. This is a funny story. So I need you all to lighten up a little. Cool? All right. It's a funny Thank you. It's, it's a funny story. Um, and so what we first have to do is we first have to talk about weddings in the time of Jesus. Weddings in the time of Jesus, uh, they usually lasted around six or seven days. Anybody ever been to a wedding that lasts six or seven days? No, no, I, I have not either. Um, and imagine that you plan for a wedding that lasts six or seven days, and on day four, the booze runs out. Can you imagine what kind of wedding that was for the first four days? It had to be pretty epic. Right? And so let's think about how epic this wedding is. And I also want us to take a second and think about Jesus. I need you all to admit something. Well, some of you, admit this. We, all we have with Jesus is the text, right? All we have is scripture. How many people feel like Jesus is a little bit too serious? Maybe a little bit of a stick in the mud? Be honest. Be honest. None of y'all. Liars. <laughs> Thank you. One person said you, maybe. I think all of us, like in some way, we read like Jesus in all his wisdom, and we picture Jesus at a wedding like, and I've said this before, like poking ice in a glass, right? Just sitting there while everybody dances. Like that's all Jesus does. And I, 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 think, Jesus, I think Jesus loved to party. Like, in fact, there's scriptural evidence that that's true. Okay, and so I think Jesus was out there and he's like dancing and like doing like the cha-cha, whatever else. And it's like really amazing. And then Jesus goes outside. Because have you ever been at that point in a wedding where you're hot? You know at that point I'm talking about. You've been dancing and you're hot and you're like, oh, we should go outside for a little bit, right? <laughs> I'm the only one that's experienced all this. <laughs> there we go. Now we're getting some people talking. Yeah, and I think that's what Jesus did with his disciples. And what do you do when you go outside? You have a cigar, you drink some bourbon or whatever, you spend some time to talk. And so I picture Jesus is outside doing that, like having a bourbon with the disciples, and they're like, whoa, like that was crazy dancing. I don't know, whatever it might be. <laughs> and Jesus' mom comes up, and Jesus' mom says, we're out of wine. And then Jesus says, why would you concern me with that, right? And there's so many commentaries out there to read about why Jesus might have said, why would you concern me with that? And I'm telling you, there's like hundreds of different theories. Mine is that Jesus was just having a pretty good time and didn't want to be bothered. That's, and I really believe that. Like, I really believe it. I think that's what was going on. But Jesus' mom, like, sort of doesn't listen. It just, just goes to the sewers and goes, just do it, whatever he tells you. And I love the, I love the parent play right here. Um, I do this play all the time. Uh, in fact, yesterday I get home, and I walk into the living room, my kids are playing with their friends, and there were like books all over the floor. And so I said to the kids, put the books away. And the kids said, we don't want to do that, we're playing with our friends. And I said, thanks for getting it done, I'll be back in 20 minutes to make sure it's done, right? We don't, we don't give them that opportunity, right? We just say, you're going to do it regardless of whether you want to or not. And that's what Jesus' mom does. She's like, just tell him, you know, listen to what he says, because he's going to do it. Like, it's, it's that kind of thing. And so he does. And this is what happens next. What happens next? Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to them, fill up the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. Okay. What can you imagine happening if you can imagine this miracle taking place? I think we're getting there. I want to talk about these jars for a minute. And in order to talk about these jars, I need to tell you something that happened a couple weeks ago. Okay. A couple weeks ago, I went to take out the trash. The trash was a little full, 
And this was the trash outside of my apartment. It was a little full. And so I went to push down on the trash. And when I pushed down on the trash, I put my hand in dog poo. And it was awful. And I ran back in the house and I cleaned up incessantly, like, you know, washed up. I just washed and like, I took the towel that I used and I threw it in the dirty clothes because I don't want that towel defiling anything else. And it was the situation where I was like, that was awful. Um, and it was, <laughs> and it was. So if you're in the time of Jesus, not only are you dealing with animal excrement, but animals are actually living in your home. That's real. Animals would probably live in a, in a dwelling that was off to where your rooms were, and so you're dealing with animals all the time. There was no such thing as neurosporin in those days, so you did have a fair amount of cuts. You had cuts and wounds on you, and sometimes those wounds would fester. And then it's interesting, but in the book of Leviticus, um, the book of Leviticus pays a ton of attention to what happens if you get menstrual blood on your hands or semen on your hands. It cares a whole lot about that, okay? A little odd for us but that's what it talks about. And so in fact, when you look at the book of Leviticus, you have about 40 verses of what to do when your hands are filled with something that you don't want your hands to be filled with. It's just true. And this is what it says in Leviticus 15, 11. I just picked out one. Uh, a man with discharge who touches, who touches without rinsing his hands with water must wash their clothes and bathe with water and they will be unclean till evening. And so what ends up happening with most of these passages is that when you uh, have touched something disgusting like I did or whatever the case may be, uh, what generally goes down is that you are now considered unclean and you're considered unclean for usually a day or seven days or in some cases a month. All right, are we following along? Now, what will often happen is that these ritual, uh, these uh, purification rituals, they become religious. They become religious. And so what you would do is you had these stone vats at the entrance of somebody's house, at the entrance of a wedding or whatever it might be, and you would take your hands and you would dip your hands in right up until about the elbow, and you would wash yourself, and then you would show everybody, look, I washed myself, I made myself clean, and they would invite you in, okay? Now what started to happen was that people would say, hmm, they aren't able to wash themselves in these jars, which must mean that they're not clean, but it also must mean that God must be angry with them because they're unable to be purified. So it started to do that. So now all of a sudden, it's, well, who can't wash their arms? Well, people with physical or mental disabilities can't wash their arms. They must be on the outs with God. They must be out. They must be excluded. Uh, you know, Gentiles, they're not Jewish. They can't they can't wash in the jars. Must mean that God doesn't love them. Must mean they're out. Must mean they're excluded. Do we see what starts to happen with the jars? They start to become, um, you know, this gateway. They start to become this bouncer of sorts as to who God loves and God favors and who God doesn't love and who God doesn't favor. Are we seeing why Jesus might have used these jars? Are we starting to get there, right? So what happens? Let's read. So Jesus takes these jars and we draw some out and he takes it to the chief steward. And so they took it and when the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom to him. Hold on, this is funny. Okay, it's funny because if you have hundreds of people dipping their dirty hands in the water, what's the water gonna look like? It's, what's it gonna look like? You could say it. Filthy, it's gross, it's like toilet water, Right? And Jesus, Jesus says to the servants, I've turned this water into wine, now go tell your boss. And they bring it to the boss and they say, boss, drink this. But they don't know it's been turned into wine yet. They think they're giving the boss the toilet water. Is this, 
this, this, it's funny. It's, it's funny, all right? So it's a little bit of a joke, right? And then the boss drinks it, and the boss says, oh my gosh, everyone drinks the good wine first, and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. And Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and, re- and revealed his glory, and the disciples believed him. Wow. So now we have right around 180 gallons, because you have the six jars, you know, times about 30 gallons, 180 gallons of abundance, 180 gallons of really good wine, 180 gallons of celebration. And, and do we start to see what happens when we can imagine this miracle happening? Because this miracle isn't so much about turning water into wine. It's not so much about that. Although that's kind of a miracle in itself, right? Grapes react chemically. They become fermented. That's a miracle. But do we see how maybe it's about the jars? about what those jars mean? For thousands upon thousands of years, those jars meant you were either in or you were out. And so you had this very conditional uh, idea of how God was and if God accepted you. It was conditional. Now, at this conference last week, um, we talked about, we had this whole day talking about how preachers preach out of their woundedness, which was really good for my psyche. Um, <laughs> but it's true. I think preachers preach out of their woundedness. And I think I'm still so wounded by the fact that growing up, um, I believed in the love of God and I believed that Jesus Christ died for my sins, but I was always scared to death of what would come next. What would I do that would make God mad? What would I do that, that, that maybe would get God to a place where God didn't want me in that wedding any longer or in that place? What would I, what? And so it was this constant walking on eggshells and tiptoeing until a point where I was like, forget it. I don't want to play by these rules anymore. I don't want to play this game. And I just gave up. And then, what about the other people? Well, those people, they're loved, but they haven't dipped their hands in the jar yet, and so they're not really loved. They're actually excluded. Oh, those people, you know, I love them to death, but they sin. So love the sinner, hate the sin. Um, and so really, they, they can't dip their hands in the jar. They're, they're excluded. We do that, right? We draw the lines. We create divisions, and we still do it. I can't begin to tell you how many times that we preach on love, or I preach on love, and somebody comes up to me and says, but there's got to be a line somewhere, Right? And the amazing part of this miracle, and we can imagine what happens when miracles happen, is that Jesus, by using these jars, says there is no line anywhere. That's it. All are welcome in. All are affirmed. All are loved. All are created in the image of God. That's it. There is nothing else there. And I say this about every three months. I'm going to say it again. But I want to draw that line because that person cannot be there. It's not possible. And when I draw that line, there stands Jesus on the other side. Going, nope, they're in too. No jars for them either. What can we imagine when we imagine this miracle taking place? We can imagine a life that looks like this. I love what Brian McLaren says. He says, we imagine a life of abundance. We imagine a life that shifts from asking, are you clean or unclean? To just asking, are you filled with joy? It's a life that shifts from anxiety to celebration. It's a life that shifts from, are you in or out? Or is there enough for everybody? It shifts from dividing to uniting, from hostility to solidarity, from us and them to all of us, a love story, us for them. And that's what this miracle does. And so today, my guess, in some way, in some form, you feel like you're on the other side of the line. I think we all feel like we're on the other side of the line. Like we're unable to dip our hands, right? Like we're excluded from something. I talked about this a couple weeks ago. There are times when I'm so anxious and I just, I can't get it together and I feel like I just, I'm so anxious that I'm not believing enough or I'm not faithful enough and so I'm on the other side. Maybe that's how we feel today. 
I think there are some of us who have been hurt or wounded or abused and we feel like we're on the other side, not able to join in that party. Somebody's told us that because of our orientation or gender identity or whatever, that we can't be involved in the party. Abuse makes us feel like we can't be a part of the party. What can you imagine when you imagine this miracle happening? I imagine lines being abolished. I imagine us all partying with Jesus. I imagine us all being able to sit on that back deck drinking bourbon or water or whatever it might be, depending on your preference. I imagine the simple yet profound truth that we are all invited, that we are all included, that we are all loved, and that we are all children of God. That's what this miracle does. It takes away anything that might block us from knowing that we are fully and 100% loved by our God. And that is a miracle. That's a miracle. So today, here's all I want to do. Let's just live in that good news. Live in the good news that there's, we're enough. We are enough. We don't have to dip our hands. There's no bouncer at the door telling us we can't come in. Regardless of where you are, where you stand today, you are enough. And you are made in the image of God. And you are saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. And maybe that's all we need to do today. And maybe when we walk through life and we see people on the outside and we go, oh my gosh, that person is the worst and they're definitely not in. Say, you know what the miracle is? That they're enough too. The miracle is that they're with me. The miracle is that they're also a child of God. Maybe that changes the way we interact. Maybe that's a miracle in itself. So today, what can you imagine when you imagine water being turned into wine? And I just sit here and the good news is that lines are erased and all is forgiven and we are loved more infinitely and unimaginably than we could ever even realize. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for erasing lines. Thank you for not having a bouncer at the door. Thank you for no exclusivity. Thank you for the grace that comes when we don't feel like we have it right. And help us to live in the good news, the good news of this miracle. I pray this in your name. Amen.